Inside Syracuse Basketball with Mike Waters. Presented by Syracuse.com. College basketball is a great thing. Anything can happen. Welcome to the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast. I'm Mike Waters. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Syracuse basketball player Herman Harid. I talked with Herman about playing for Baltimore powerhouse Dunbar High School, the knee injury that practically ruined his career, and how he got the nickname Tree. How are you, Herm? Doing okay. Doing okay and uh, trying to take care of myself like everyone else is during this very difficult time. You know, just before we started recording, we were just kind of catching up with each other. Uh, You're still at Lake Clifton High School down in Baltimore, uh, both basketball coach and athletic director, right? Yes, yes. And we were talking about what it's been like for you in both of those roles with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we're, we're coming up on almost a year now, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Have you been able to do anything with, with like the players on your team? Uh, you know, are you are you able to play at all right now? No, it's, you know, it, it's it's late, it's late clip and reach. We we in another. We relocated to another building uh, two years ago, but it's still it's late Clifton slash reach partnership high school now. Uh, but to answer your question, we haven't had any athletic contact since March of 13th last year. So that has been very, no workouts, no nothing, no use of facilities, no training, no anything. So I haven't, um, I haven't been around my guys in almost a year. And I tell people, I give the example of, I feel like I've taken my kids to an amusement park and can't find them. Like I lost them. I can hear them calling me, but I just can't get to them. And I just can't find them. And that's the example I give of how I feel about being away from the kids so long. So you haven't been able to play or practice or anything. And have you even been able to keep in contact with your, with your kids? What I, what I did as the athletic director, as well as the basketball coach uh, in August, when I found out we weren't going to start uh, physical school again, I met with my coach and asked him, would they agree with starting virtual engagement sports with me? So we can still be engaged with our athletes and still support them academically, still support them socially, emotionally. Mm-hmm. And of course, easy, no stipend to it or nothing like that. And they all agree. So we have been keeping in contact with our, you know, mainly our returning athletes and any new ones that have come on board uh, virtually. So we meet uh, twice a week or more. And we also, we also just start after school uh, tutoring program where the coaches are in there with their athletes being tutored in math and English. So we have been engaged with our athletes all year virtually. Uh, and it's made a difference being able just to see them, talk to them, still communicate to them. It's made a difference, but nothing is like live communication. Nothing is like live physical communication, but this is all we have right now. And just trying to make the best of it. You know, I think this whole pandemic has been so hard on the younger people, kids. So I was wondering about your son, Armin, who I know is in his sophomore year at Canisius. How's he doing? I, I'm going to tell you, like it, I don't know how these college kids are doing it. <laughs> I have physically watched my son quarantine about four to five times. And I, I can't imagine being stuck in my apartment room or my dorm room for 14 days. Like when I, I, I when he, we, we returned to school uh, this August, all I could do was help him unload his stuff to his apartment and I had to go. No dinner, no hanging out. 
I just pulled off and that was it. I went to my hotel room and drove home the next day. That was the all the communication I had when it was helping him get his stuff into his room. Um, and I know it's been difficult for him. Uh, just, you know, to practice, stop practice, no practice, stop practice. And it's amazing because they were scheduled to play Niagara today at 12 and tomorrow at 12. Right. Come to find out last night, the game is not going to be played. So you you saw these highs and lows all the time. And then that's, that can socially and mentally affect you. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's getting through it. I, I'll be honest with you. I'll be glad when the season is over. Really? That way he don't have to keep going through this roller coaster of a season. Um, because it has to take the win out. Like they played, it was on a 42 day pause. 42 days? And then they played four games. They played, uh, they've been playing these teams back to back. So they played four games in a row. And then they had to pause again. Wow. It got to be tough. It has to be tough. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I know from covering the team up here and, and having two kids in college myself, uh, and they're not athletes, they're just in college. And I know how hard it's been. So, uh, that's got to be brutal, but I, I hope uh, I hope he and his teammates are able to at least somehow complete the season and maybe have a conference tournament or something. Yeah, but it's weird you say conference tournament because they have four games re- they have four games remaining, uh-huh. and you have to have thirteen games to play in the tournament. Well, with these two games not being played, even if they have the next two, they would have only have played twelve games. Wow. So they may not be able to play in the tournament. One game short. <laughs> wow. it, it, it's, it's tough. And it's, even for a, just a normal college student, it's not your traditional college world. Yeah. Socializing and hanging out. And, you know, it's not your typical college environment. It's just not. You know, when I introduced you here at the start, I said it was Herman Tree Harid. And it's funny. I know a lot of Syracuse fans, they, they, they know you as Helicopter. But I know all your teammates, Derek and Billy and all those guys, you're they don't call you Calico, they call you Tree. They call me Tree, yeah. Yep. Where did you get when and where did you get the nickname Tree? It's amazing you asked me that. Uh, I started playing ball at uh, Cecil Kirk Rec at nine. Uh, right around the corner from my house, right around the corner from Lake Clifton, where I'm currently am now. And I had this big, you know, back then, Michael Jackson was the, was the hit. And especially in the black community, Michael Jackson was the one. He was like a Michael Jordan in the black community. <laughs> so I had this big old Michael Jackson afro. Clean. I mean, it was, and it was out there, too. And uh, I, I went in the gym for maybe, and I was real skinny, of course. I was very skinny. And uh, I went in the gym for maybe uh, five minutes, and the coach looked at me and said, I'm going to call you Tree. <laughs> And that name has continued, and it's made that you asked me that that coach just passed away three days ago. Oh, no, really? Yep, he had a heart attack and, and passed away just three days ago. They gave me the name Tree, just passed away. So Tree started at, at, at Cecil Kirk with an afro and being real skinny. And when, you, you know, when you're in these communities like this, you pick up these basketball names, yeah. which become your, your brand. It becomes your brand and your right. trademark. And tree is still my brand and my trademark. That's why I have to use Herman Tree to read on everything. I can't remember the last time I had to leave you a message, but I know at one time that was on your voicemail recording. It said Herman Tree to read. Some people might call for, you know, for me to hear the word tree. Well, I don't know tree. Or some people might ask for Herman. I don't know no, or tree. I don't know no Herman. So I have to say 
Herman Tree Harid. Yeah, you've reached you've reached the number of Herman Harid. Click. That's not who I'm looking for. That's not, that's, that's, that's not who I called for. So they hang up. So I have to identify myself across the board. <laughs> um, I have to ask you about Dunbar. The Dunbar poets. You played on some amazing teams. Maybe the best high school team ever, right? What were those teams like? There's a lot of good teams in, in this country now. You know, you got these nationally ranked powerhouses, prep schools, and all that stuff. But I always tell people, if you look at these nationally ranked prep schools, they are prep schools. They are kids that's coming from all over different cities. They're coming from everywhere. That's the best player from here, best player from there. Right. We right. were a local high school. We were just community kids, <laughs> and we were nationally ranked. So I think that's more powerful than what even taking place to this day because we were just from one area. And there will never be another Dunbar era of basketball ever. I, I had an undefeated team years ago, 28-0, Will Barton in Cleveland, Melbourne. He played in the Big East for a while. And when we went undefeated, you know, people just started trying to make that comparison of my team to the Dunbar team. And I said, look, don't even do it. <laughs> we were good. up to our, We were 28-0 this season. We had some elite players. But we are nothing like Dunbar. So I just put that conversation to cease right away. Um, it was just a, it, it, we were a show. We weren't just basketball. We were a show. Like to see the turnout for our games, mm -hmm. and when we, we when we snapped when we snatched off our warm up pants, it was part of the show. When we came out the hallway to the to the gym to warm up, it was just a show. Um, it's nothing like it. And I've been coaching high school basketball for 25 years. You know, I've tried to run my program with a lot of those similarities. But it will nothing. It'll be never nothing like that again. And it's weird again when just as I'm getting on with you, I was talking to my high school coach, Bob Wade. Bob Wade. He's like, he's like a second father to me. So he and I talk often. Um, it went from a high school coach relationship to a fatherly relationship. Um, so I consider him like a second dad. And I just, hung, I was like, Mr. Wade, I have to get on a Zoom call at two thirty. He's like, Okay, go ahead and take care of your business. I just hung up with him. Oh my God, I feel bad. <laughs> No, I talk to him all the time. We talk all the time. Now, I when, when I think back to that Dunbar team, of course, there's you. Mm -hmm. There's uh, David Wingate, mm -hmm. Georgetown. There's mm -hmm. Reggie Williams, Georgetown. Right. Reggie Lewis, who would go on and play in the North, NBA. Northeastern. Right? Northeastern. Northeastern and then NBA. But the guy I ought to ask you about is Muggsy Bogues. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first time you ever saw Muggsy on a court? And what, what was your impression? Well, you know, in Baltimore City back then in the era where I was growing up, rec centers were big. We had rec centers in all the neighborhoods. Yeah. And all those rec centers had their own basketball teams. So we always competed against each other in what we call BNBL and Project Survival. So I was aware of Muggsy prior to coming to Dunbar from competing against him from Cecil playing against, I think he played at um, Lafayette. And Lafayette was a project, project area. And that's the rec center that he played for. So I knew who this small guy was, but knowing of him, competing against him, and playing with him is various levels. Because when we would compete against him, our game plan was whoever he's near, don't dribble the ball, just pass it. <laughs> because he would get underneath you and steal it. And we did that. And then we got to high school, you had to keep up with him. Like if, he, if we run in a fast break, you had to being shaped enough to get in front of the ball because he was so fast. Right. And if you were behind him, 
he will get upset because you're slowing the opportunity to score down. So you got to like run these lanes like, like hard to try to get in front to make a layup, which kept you well-trained. And then playing with him, we didn't have a press break. You know, most teams, I got to put in the press. If a team presses us, set this up, you cut here, you cut here, you cut here. With Muggsy Bogues, give him the ball and get out the way. <laughs> that was our press. Give him the ball and just move, and he'll break the press by himself. That's yeah. awesome. Now, well, how did you do, uh, decide to go to Syracuse? What other schools were recruiting you, or was it was it uh, did it was it was it a close, hard decision? Well, I think I was coming out of high school. I was one, I was a top one hundred. Mm-hmm. I visited uh, Villanova. I visited Wake Forest, where Muggsy Bogues is. Yeah. I visited Syracuse, and I visited the University of Virginia. I visited four schools, and uh, I had one visit left to take. I, I think what attracted me to Syracuse, I always wanted to go to school, being from Baltimore City, and looking at some of the things that we had, unfortunately have to look at every day, coming out of a city environment. I mean, I grew up in the city, but I didn't live bad or anything like that. I, I had a, we were well taken care of. But our surroundings weren't always good. And the things we saw wasn't always good. Yeah. So my goal was to go to a school far enough out of Baltimore City to learn a new way of living, but not too far that my parents and family couldn't get to me. And Syracuse being a five, five and a half, five and a half hours from Baltimore, you know, I just thought that was a good fit for how far I wanted to go, but not wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And then also, you can't beat the carrier dome. It's nowhere, you know, come out of high school, you can walk into some place and walk into a carrier dome. You know, most places have gyms where they have a little teeny arena. <laughs> you walk into a carrier dome at 17, 18 years old. And then, you know, um, the sky top apartments. I mean, come on, man, you're, you're, you're a teenager living in your own apartment. You don't get no better than that. <laughs> you're, not living, you're not living in a dorm room. You're not sharing a, a two-bedroom dorm room. You have a two-bedroom apartment at 18 years old. I mean, it don't get no better than that. Sure. Um, and then, of course, the university was a good school. The guys that I met on the visit, Raphael Addison, who's still a very dear friend of mine to this day, who was my host, you know, I took a liking to him. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Syracuse basketball had become one of the biggest things in the Big East during that era. You know, the Big East was, was what they say hot and popping at that time. And Syracuse, for some reason, Syracuse related to the, the, the city environment for some reason. Like Georgetown and Syracuse somehow related to the city. Yeah. And uh, so we had all those assets, and, you know, Beheim being a good coach as he is. And he was what up was and coming. Like back then, what was he when, when he recruited you or when he was coach? What was Beheim like? I thought Beheim was a nerd. Um, he's not even close to being a nerd. Okay. Bayheim is very down with everything that is going on. And sometimes he don't always talk like a nerd. Let's leave it at that when you're in that locker room. <laughs> so I, I, I was in for a shock. You know, I learned the business. You know, when you take a visit, you're going to see the only the nice side of the coach. Yeah. I mean, no other side. But as soon as you arrive on campus, you'll see the full side of the coach. And when I got on campus, we started practicing. I realized there's another side to this guy than the one I just saw in the point of visit. And that's just the nature of the business. I tell my players that. I say, when you're being recruited, 
the coach has to give you all his pleasantries. He can't give you the other side. That might make you not want to come there. And I say, once he gets you on campus, he can cut loose. So all I can say is I learned the other, I, I learned the other side of Bayham that I didn't see on my visit. <laughs> um, you know, another guy you meet when you get up there at SU, he's one year ahead of you, and that's Pearl. What, what, did, what did you think when you got on the court with Pearl? That was my guy, man. He, he showed me, he showed me around. He showed me, you know, he showed me some things. I, I'll leave it at that. He, he was a good mentor. He was a very good person. And what I liked about Pearl, out of all the hoopla that was made about him, mm-hmm. he was a very humble person. Yeah. He wasn't egotistic. And that's what made me like him even more. Like, I expect him to be Pearl. I'm the man. Don't bother me. I'm the man. I do what I want, leave me alone. And he wasn't nothing like that. He, he was a very caring, he was a very good teammate. He was a fun teammate, but I liked how humble he was. And, and it's hard for a person to get all that, that attention that he was getting at that time to still be humble. Sure. And he still he still found a way to do that. Like out, nobody on the team was jealous of him because he was Pearl and he was always getting all the accolades and all the notoriety. Nobody didn't care about that because he didn't look down on us being Pearl. He was always still one of us. And he just was a gifted, he was just gifted. He was just gifted. And you're not going to come across Pearl Walsh. You're going to always come across good players. But that Pearl was, it was only one Pearl. It was only one Pearl. Were you able to, uh, were you able to connect with him or talk to him before he passed away? It's weird you said that. I I did. I did. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think who called me. Someone called me and said Pearl is not doing too good. I don't know who called me. I can't remember his. And I had his phone number. And I think when I called him, he was in the hospital. And I think his wife or girlfriend answered the phone. And yep. I could hear her, and I could hear her saying, um, I guess to see if he wanted to talk to whoever called his phone. I hear I, I could hear her saying it's Herman. And obviously he must have said yes. And I and I, she gave him the phone. And we used to always have this little joke. I don't know how I came up with this dumb joke. But I was always, I would always say this saying like like a, the word buck, like a buck on your face. Yeah. I would always say like you know, buck, 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 buck. And he thought it was the most hilarious thing that I could say out of my mouth. So when she gave him the phone, that's the first thing I said. And I could him laughing and I could him struggling to laugh. Mm-hmm. But he was still laughing. Yeah. And uh, I just say, you know, just hang in there, man. I love you. And uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. And I think maybe a couple of days or weeks or so after he had passed away. Wow. So thank God I did have a chance to speak to him. Yeah, that's a blessing. Yes, yes, it was. Yes, Absolutely. It was. He was good to me, man. I said, when he had, to, he had to go home to New York, he let me drive his car. I'll drive to the airport and i have his car. I was a big man on campus driving Pearl's car. So he was good to me, man. He was good. You know, um, Syracuse has had some characters. Oh, yeah. And one of them, the one, maybe one of the biggest profiles out there is Derek Coleman. And I know he's a friend of yours too. No doubt. No doubt. No doubt. What was, what was DC like back, back when you guys were both at SU? I think one of the gifts I have when anytime you in this or doing what we do, you have to have a gift of learning people and understanding people. And I believe that is a gift that I have that I, I learned people for myself. You're not going to tell me about someone and I'm going to judge them. I'm going to judge them for what I 
what I learned from myself. And Derek Coleman was just a Detroit guy. He was a tough guy from Detroit. He believed in Detroit. He would die for Detroit. And he brought that, that personality to the court. That's what made him good, was how tough he was. And a lot of times he was misunderstood because he was, he was a big presence. Yeah. He was a very huge presence with a very rough approach. So a lot of people thought he wasn't the person that he was. And Derek Coleman is a very caring person. He's a very good person. And uh, I'm blessed to, that I play with him and still know him to this day. Uh, but he just, he just a rough, he's just rough. He's just rough. He's rough on the edges. But you got to think of a lot of times where these guys are coming from, a lot of people on the outside don't know why they're rough. They don't know the things they've gone through. They don't know the things they've seen in their lives. Yeah. So they don't mean intentionally be rough. They just grew up rough. And you can't expect somebody to convert like that all of a sudden because you grew up in a rough situation. So, but he was a good teammate. Hannah, I think he and I had scuffles in practice and stuff like that. And after practice, we all hanging out together, man. You know, and that's where our mutual respect was. I, I didn't, I didn't bow down to him. Mm-hmm. He had to respect me. And then I respected him. And after our relationship even more, when he knew I wasn't afraid of him, I wasn't scared of him, and I would fight him if we had to. And he and, and he knew that because we had some scuffles before, but that made our relationship even better because it was a mutual respect. I'm from the city, he's from the city. So sometimes our cities collide. <laughs> Which made us closer. Yeah. What was his relationship like with Beheim? I tell you, he, I, I'm gonna say Derek Coleman loves Beheim, and I think Beheim loves Derek Coleman. Um, I think Beheim, I think Beheim, like I said, took time to understand Derek. Okay. I think he took time. Which all coaches, I'm a coach right now myself, and one of the things I have to do is understand the character of all my guys. I gotta know what buttons to push, what buttons really not to push, um, and I think Beheim took time to understand Derek. Mm-hmm. You don't have, you always have to like somebody, but you just have to understand them. You ain't always like what somebody do, but you gotta understand them. And I think Beheim really understood Derek and he allowed Derek to be Derek Coleman, understanding Derek Coleman. Now, I think they had a very good relationship. You know, your career was obviously uh, hampered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really not the right word. Right, right, right. Uh, your career was darn near ended at one point by that knee injury. Mm-hmm. I know it happened between your freshman and sophomore years, but you know what? It dawns on me right now. I don't know how or when you sustained the injury. Uh, we were up there during the, the, my, the summer of my freshman year. So I completed a whole school year, I completed a whole season. And, you know, guys up there for summer school, mm-hmm. when you're up there for summer school, you obviously go work out and you play ball. And we're playing ball in the carrier dome, just playing pickup games. You know, of course, no workouts, nothing like that. And uh, fast break, somebody threw the ball ahead of me. I went to catch it, and it felt like I stepped in, in uh, cement. And one part of my leg went one way, and the other part of my leg went the other way. Oof. And um, back then, you know, ACL surgeries are nothing like they are now. I mean, you can have ACL, and you might be playing a week later from ACL surgery nowadays. You know, back then, you know, I was putting it, I had the surgery. I was in a cast for months, not the little Velcro sleeve. They would never do that now. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So, you know, the timing of it wasn't good. But I I always tell people to this day, my mother always told me this. My mother told me this. I I thought the world came to an end. 
and I couldn't play ball no more. And that's all I ever knew was basketball. That's all I knew was basketball. And she would always tell me something's good going to come out of this. And, and I tell people, it just made me a stronger person. Uh, when you rehab from an injury like that, you, you have to really apply yourself. Uh, not many people can rehab the way I rehab or come through a rehab like that. I had to physically apply myself. Uh, Don Lowe was a trainer. And yeah. I, always liked, I always liked what he said to me. He didn't train me to play ball again. He trained me to walk healthy again in life. And he always said this to me. I don't need you to come here and just train to play. I need you to come here and train enough to play with your grandkids and chase them around the floor or chase around the house instead of limp. And to this day, I don't limp. That's great. So I always remember him training me to, to live a somewhat healthy life. I mean, of course, I have, you know, soreness sometimes and things like that. But uh, he trained me to live life. And, but it was a, it, it set me back, you know, and I chose to still stay at Syracuse and still get educated and, you know, still play as much as I could when I could play. You were then on the, the, the 87 team. Um, this is what happens when you do podcasts from home, Herman. Hold on one second. I'm sorry. <laughs> My you. wife had to print out some papers and there she goes. And now she's on her way to work. <laughs> we all doing this from home, man. We all doing this. We, That's I'm right. not, normally I'm at home. I just happened to come to the school today. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, working and podcasting from home. Um, I was about to ask you about the 87 team. I'm not going to ask you about Keith Smart. No, we all know that. But I was wondering what it was like, you know, what stands out to you for that whole season? It, is it, is it the overriding, you know, Keith Smart shot or, or what else stands out? I think what stands out is the process of getting there. Okay. The work that was put in in practice, um, the, the relationships of us as teammates getting stronger, overcoming injuries, you know, little small injuries, overcoming injuries, um, getting through difficult practices, getting through difficult games, and to go through all that adversity and be in the final four, and the NCAA championship, that's not a bad run. It's not a bad run. And the way that it went down, you know, I've been, once again, I, I've been coached for 25 years. Unfortunately, unfortunately, you win some that way and you lose some that way. Really, and I, I had these conversations with my players. I've, I've won many championships in, this, in the gym behind me on a buzzer beater shot. And I've mm -hmm. jumped around, I've jumped around and celebrated. And I've also been in the other end as a coach. Like, oh man, we just had the game. So, it was just the luck of the draw. It was just the luck of the draw. That's all. We were just on the bad end of the draw. At Lake Clifton, more often than not, you're on the good end of the draw. You've won, what is it now, five state titles? Five state championships, two state championships in a row, and we're going our way last year to do three in a row before, before the COVID put an end to it. You know, normally when you have that kind of success, they put your name on the court. It is. I wish I, <laughs> I, knew, I, wish I knew. And it's amazing. We're in the new school. So my name was on the old school court, and they even put it they put it over here on the new floor. So my, my name has been blessed to be on two courts. In one, <laughs> life, in one lifetime, I've been on two basketball courts. That's got to be some sort of a record. I mean, not even Mike Krzyzewski or Jim Beheim are on more than one court. I've been on two courts in a lifetime. They, they transferred the whole image of the, the signature in my name from the old court, which is right across the street, and the same thing is here on the new court. That's fantastic. 
So that's a blessing. And, and I, you know, I didn't do it. I didn't get into coaching for that reason. But, you know, I always tell my players, when you do right, and you do right by people, you will be blessed when you don't even see it coming. And my name on the court is just reflection of people recognize the work that I do or have done with these young people and felt as though I was honored enough to get that done. So I'm very grateful for it. Well, I'm going to finish with, it's not a question, but I, I, I want Syracuse fans, anybody else listening to the podcast to understand this about, about you mm-hmm. and what kind of person you are. My first year on the beat covering SU basketball was your fifth year, senior year. Mm-hmm. So you and I overlapped one, one year. And so we, we didn't really know each other super well in just one year. We've gotten to know each other in the 32 years since. But you left SU and <coughs> went overseas. Mm-hmm. And you were playing ball in England, I think it was. It was England. And I wrote a story about how you were doing over there. Mm-hmm. And about oh, two weeks after the story had ran into paper, remember this is the days before the internet, I got a postcard. I don't know if you remember this, but I've never forgotten it. You sent me a postcard thanking me for the story and taking the time to do it. And I thought that told me so much about the person that you are. I'm not surprised to see you go on and and everything you've done and, and done for kids and caring about people. None of it surprises me because that postcard was just so revealing. Do you remember that? I do, and it's amazing how you and I have kept in contact in some capacity over over all that time. Because mm-hmm. you have done a number of stories with me. I, I'm looking at a lot in my office. I have frames of all my championships in, in these frames with articles. And some of these frames have your articles in there. <laughs> and it's just amazing how you and I, we have stayed connected over these years. And when you reached out to me about this podcast, I, you can see I text you back. I said, for you, yes. <laughs> well, there's no hesitation to it. Um, so you know, I have a kind of person I'm, for anybody. I I know I can. I, I'm a very demanding person. I can be very persistent. Sometimes I'm misunderstood because I am very driven. Mm-hmm. I have a zero tolerance for. Let's use the word junk. I know it's other hard words I'd rather use, but I have a very zero tolerance for mess. Put it that way. That I won't tolerate. But I do know that I'm a very giving, I'm a very caring, I'm a very appreciative person. And I know I've always tried to be good to people that's been good to me. And I was raised that way. My parents, they always, my parents, and that's why I love them. My dad's deceased, but my mom is still alive. They never taught us the difference between white and black. Mm-hmm. They just taught us to judge people. And I, I can't imagine how they could do that knowing what they went through being black. So how you not teach your kids different? But they didn't do that, and I admire them for that. So I've had a uh, I was I had a gift of dealing with just people, not colors, not nationalities, not where you're from. I have a gift of just dealing with people. Um, so you know, I, I'm just a, a a person that just care about people. I'm very grateful for people that do things for me. As I sent you that postcard, that was a way of saying thank you. Well, and, I, and I don't think it takes much. I don't think it takes much to say thank you. Like I, I try to teach my players, I teach my own kids. You know, don't call somebody just when you need something. Give them a few hellos prior to you needing something. But when somebody do something for you, call and say thank you. Or something. nowadays it's easy. I can send you a text and say thank you. 
You don't have to talk to people no more. You can just talk to them through your phone. But I know I teach my kids to be grateful, like even in the school. And I try to teach my players life skills on every possible chance I can. Like on Valentine's Day and Holiday, what I'll do, I'll go to the dollar store and I'll buy like maybe 50 balloons with a heart. And I make the team walk around the building and give a balloon to each teacher. That's teaching them how to give back. Yep. That's teaching them to do for others besides themselves. Because most of the time, everything is being done for them. Mm-hmm. And like even in practice, I teach my kids to share. I'll make my kids go get cups of water for each other. Mm-hmm. Because you got to learn how to do for other people besides yourself. So I'll like if we're in practice, you'll have to go get a cup of water for somebody else. And then somebody's going to get a cup of water and give it to you. That's called sharing. So I, that's the person I am. That's the person I am. Um, that's just the person I am. Well, you're a great person and you're the ideal person uh, to have uh, teaching young kids. I tell you why, because I I know they're learning a lot more about life and and how to be adults, uh, which is what you're hoping for. And it's just a pleasure every time I get a chance to talk to you, Tree. So uh, if I can call you Tree. (laughs) You've got 32 years, you can call me Tree. Yeah, you've got the right to call me Tree now. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And this is going to be shown in Syracuse, right? Absolutely. Roseanne, I love you. That's one of mine. She took me in years ago, and she's like a second mom to me up in Syracuse. She's a second mom to me in Syracuse. All right. We'll have to make sure she sees this then. Okay. All right. Thank you, man. Take care of yourself, man. I will. You too. I appreciate it. I want to thank Herman for joining me on the podcast today. And thanks to you out there as well for listening in. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast and follow all the Syracuse basketball action this season with our complete coverage on Syracuse.com. Until next time on the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast, I'm Mike Waters.